0: Inspired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host,
1: David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 106 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, I'll be discussing Orson Scott Card's classic novel Ender's Game with D.E. Witkauer, editor of the book Ender's Game and Philosophy, and Ashley Hsu wrote an essay for the book. But first up, we've got an interview with Carl Schrader, one of the best authors in the current generation of hard science fiction writers. He's also an accomplished futurist who works in strategic foresight for the design firm Idea Couture. His latest novel, Lockstep, presents a fresh take on the idea of human civilization in space. And now, here's our interview with Carl Schrader. All right, so we're here with Carl Schrader. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks. All right, so your new novel is called Lockstep, and it has one of the most interesting science fictional premises I've heard in a long time, this idea of the locksteps, and I want to get to that in just a second. But first, I want to just talk about the setting of the book, because this book is set in interstellar space in the several light years' worth of space between our solar system and Alpha Centauri. And I think most people would imagine that there's not much there, but in your novel, there's a lot there. So tell us about that.
2: Yeah, it's... uh... A couple of years ago, I stumbled across an astronomy paper, Uh, I believe it was called Nomads of the Galaxy, talking about um, some observations that had been made um, using microlensing techniques, which is basically looking at stars uh, winking because something passed in front of them. Uh, very, very distant in the galaxy. But what they, the people doing the study were finding was that uh, the number of winks was extremely high. Uh, and what this implied was that uh, there could be up to a 100,000 free-floating planets for every star in the galaxy. And by free-floating, I mean um, interstellar wanderers, nomads, orphan worlds. Uh, most of them would be really tiny, um, like the size of Pluto, or, or even much smaller. But uh, a few would be Earth's size or even bigger. And uh, if every star in the galaxy has this retinue uh, of uh, uh, sort of dark angels following it around, then, wow, that was a fantastic setting. And I, I had to do something with it.
1: Mm. Well, why don't you tell us what kind of technologies would it take for people to live on these uh, these small planets just out in the middle of interstellar space, how would we get our food and water and energy
2: and so on? Well, this is where it gets fun because when you first think of colonizing Pluto or, or, or places beyond that, it seems like a bleak and horrible thing to do. Um, you know, you're going basically to the back of beyond, further than the back of beyond, to a, a place where our sun is no brighter than any other star in the sky um and it's absolute zero outside uh you're on a tiny ice ball which is you know too big to be called a comet uh, but too small to be called a planet what are you going to do there how are you possibly going to live um the solution is the kind of solution that actually has evolved here on earth uh if you ever get the chance to go up to the high arctic to the tundra You'll find in the summer these tiny little Arctic wildflowers, which look so incredibly delicate, Um, but they've survived in that incredibly harsh environment for millions of years. Uh, We had a little bit of a taste of their winter winter in North America, Um, and uh, it's amazing that they could do it, but they use a, a very simple and straightforward trick. They are dormant most of the time. There's a very brief Arctic summer, uh, and during that that brief uh, flowering, uh, these plants and the animals that live off them um, undergo a burst of growth, and they exploit that energy as quickly as they can, as much as they can, and then they go dormant again. And uh, I took that as a a great sort of model to follow and uh, designed the civilization of the locksteps around it.
1: Yeah, and so the the civilization of the locksteps relies very heavily on going dormant in these these hibernation beds that you call cicada beds. Um, why don't you tell us about that technology and why is it called? Why are they called cicada beds?
2: Uh, well, first of all, um, I, I'd kind of like to to say why I would go this kind of crazy route um, uh, rather than just writing a book in which you know people skip. Between stars faster than light, mm-hmm. uh, and, and the reason is because um, Star Wars, Star Trek, uh, Battlestar Galactica—these are great stories. They only suffer from one problem: they're all impossible. Um, as far as we know, uh, Einstein laid down or discovered a rule that's ironclad across the cosmos: you cannot travel faster than light. If you cannot travel faster than light, um, then all of these stories become fantasies. Um, people have tried to figure out ways to you know, accelerate starships up to close to light speed and, and uh, you basically have to take uh, enough energy to blow up a planet to do something like that. Uh, it, it's, it's crazy, it's actually ridiculous to even try. Um, but there is another way and it involves uh, hibernation, it involves cold sleep. And, uh, it turns out that that is a, uh, although we don't know how to do it right now, um, a much easier problem to solve than the problem of faster than light travel or even near light speed travel. Um, there might in the end be a way to travel faster than light, but there's probably only one way. Uh, but there's probably many different routes to achieving, um, hibernation technology that would actually work
1: Mm -hmm. and uh, so why'd you decide to call them cicada beds
2: uh well the because the civilization itself works a lot like uh, cicadas do they they um as a species have evolved to all wake simultaneously essentially um for their brief mating period um uh, this is because any male who wakes outside of the cycle, um, well, simply won't find a mate. So they've, they've, uh, over however long, millions of years maybe, they've developed a system whereby they wake and sleep in lockstep. And, uh, the cicadas all come alive at the same time. They have this brief flowering, like those arctic flowers I, I mentioned, and then they, uh, the next generation comes along. Um, the cicada beds in Lockstep are—they're literally beds. You, they're the same beds you sleep on, you know, any other uh, night. But on one night out of every month, they quietly, after you've gone to sleep, um, set you into deep, deep hibernation, um, and eventually, and mostly the Lockstep world, they freeze you solid, and you stay that way for thirty years, and so does everyone else. The entire civilization goes dormant for 30 years and then wakes for a month uh, okay. and goes to sleep for 30 years and wakes for a month, uh, which is, of course, insane. Um, <laughs> there's there's no rational reason why you would do something like that um, in a place like Earth. But when you get out between the stars to these nomad worlds, all of a sudden becomes not just a, a viable way to live, but perhaps the best way to live. Um, because in that brief flowering, you can use up all of the resources that your robots and uh, uh, mechanized uh, industries have been slowly gathering and building over the last 30 years. You can have a party for a month, go to sleep, wake up the next day and party for another month. Hmm. And it doesn't matter what size of world you're on. The smallest comet and the largest planet can participate equally in this uh, in this civilization. But even better, you can travel. You can uh, go to any one of thousands of worlds. If it takes you 30 years to get there at some slow sublight speed, it doesn't matter. Because it feels to you and to everyone else as if it's overnight. And uh, the beauty of this system is that it actually might be possible unlike any of the other space operas essentially out there that require some form of faster than light travel or hand-waving technology that magically makes uh, the distances of interstellar space go away. Uh, this model takes them into account. Um, it requires one thing. It requires hibernation technology way beyond what we've got right now. But what it requires isn't impossible.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, uh, I thought it was interesting. You said that, uh, speaking of faster than light travel, you, you say that I misjudge the fervor with which people cling to the belief that the light speed limit will just somehow magically and hand- <laughs> hand-wavingly get engineered around. I mean, yeah. What have been some of the most vociferous kinds of responses like that that you've gotten?
2: Oh, well, um, uh, outrage, really. Uh, no, of course we can do this. Uh, of course, faster than light travel will be invented. Uh, and, 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 you know, shame on you for saying that it won't. Um, uh, well, you know, that's. it's all very well to say that it could be invented. And in fact, you know, I will freely admit that we don't know that it can't be invented. You can't prove that faster than light travel will never be invented. But you also can't prove that Santa Claus doesn't exist. there's all kinds of things out there that you can't prove don't exist um, but that really does us no good and uh you can spend the rest of your life dreaming and wishing that faster than light travel could be invented um and I think we should certainly try to to find out whether it can be um, or. You can actually get the same thing, the same result, as you would get from faster-than-light travel by other means.
1: Mm -hmm. So, I mean, what are some of the potential drawbacks or uh, practical problems with the lockstep system that you've heard from readers, and what would be your responses to those?
2: Well, uh, first of all, it's crazy um, (laughs) because the uh, the end result, as our uh, the hero, the 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 novel Toby finds out, uh, is that uh, 40 years of lifespan for a person living in the lockstep, uh, encompasses 14,000 years of real time. Um, and on the lit worlds, places like Earth and Mars, civilizations rise and fall, uh, transhuman entities come into being, uh, rip through the, the universe, devouring everything in sight, and there are wars, and there are collapses, and there are rebirths. And all the while, the, out in the darkness, the uh, the locksteps are just chugging slowly forward. Um, and why would you go to these places um, rather than go to the exciting worlds where things are happening? Is one objection. The answer to that is that you can travel. You can travel to thousands and thousands of different worlds if you live in the lockstep. If you don't live in the lockstep and you're stuck in real time, there's probably 10 planets that you might be able to visit in your lifetime. Or if you do travel between the stars, it's a one-way journey, uh, either for you or for the people that you leave behind um, who will be dead before you get home. Um, Another objection is that uh, uh, clearly uh, the locksteps are going to be vulnerable while they're asleep. Uh, those 30-year uh, spans uh, are um, you know, perfect opportunities for raiders to come in and steal all your stuff. And that's true, but it's only the human beings who have to sleep in the lockstep. Their defenses can be awake, uh, or at least uh, alert, ready to be awakened uh, at all times. Um, another objection is that uh, economically, uh, obviously any planet that runs in real time will outperform a lockstep like the 30 years and one month one uh, by a factor of 360 to one. Um, And that might be true, but uh, any world that uh, operates like that will also be be using its resources uh, at a rate that's 360 times faster than a lockstep. Um, And more importantly, any world that's running in real time will have far fewer trading partners per lifetime, if you will, uh, per lifetime of its citizen than a lockstep. If you live in a lockstep, uh, you can get trading goods from worlds that are light years away, from thousands of different planets, and you can trade with all of those planets. Uh, subjectively for you, it seems as if um, you, you know, send away for something buy something that's uh, made a light year away, and it arrives a month from now. If you're living in the lit world, if you're living in real time, uh, all of these things take much longer. Your number of trading partners is smaller. You're you're living in a much more impoverished civilization, essentially.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the protagonist, Toby. Do you just want to say a bit about the characters and the plot of the book?
2: Yeah. it's uh I mean uh, everything I've said so far is uh sounds very complicated and uh kind of abstract. The story itself is um uh, uh kind of a family drama as a matter of fact and it all circles around uh Toby McGonagall, who's uh, uh just coming of age uh, when his family uh pulls up the roots and moves past the edge of the solar system to Homestead on the the microplanet uh, Sedna. They do this because uh, everything in the solar system is owned by the trillionaires. Um, There's no possibility for uh, um, any wealth to be appropriated by anyone else anymore. So they want to escape. They want a a homestead in a place where they could actually uh, make something for themselves. It's kind of a desperate gamble. And uh, while Toby's um, uh, uh, taking a journey between uh, Sedna and one of the nearby comets, um, uh, an accident occurs and he uh, has to go into cold sleep to ride it out because his life support's failing. failing. Um, and when he awakes, he discovers that uh, he's woken to a completely different world uh, because so much time has passed. Um, and uh, rather than cold emptiness in interstellar space, he's surrounded by the lockstep empire, which uh, is the oldest civilization uh, known to man all of a sudden. (laughs) And Worse than that, uh, he appears to be some kind of messiah for some kind of major religion in this uh, civilization that he knows absolutely nothing about. Um, And uh, even worse or even stranger than that, uh, his younger brother and his younger sister are still alive. And for some reason, they're gunning for him. Um, so the uh, the book explores, well, it follows Toby as he tries to uh, find out what the heck is going on, uh, and uh, also evade his uh, inexplicably murderous siblings as they come after him.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, one detail I really liked is that when Toby first wakes up, uh, somebody talks to him and their voice sounds strange, because they're in an atmosphere that has more argon in the air. Yeah. Could you talk about that
2: sure um, the, the the planet is low down is the, the the name of it and it's got argon and uh, neon in the atmosphere which uh, you can get on these uh, uh, trans plutonian objects. Uh, it's been hypothesized that Pluto has uh, a larger neon atmosphere. so one of the things the locals do is they uh, well they, they pump oxygen into it. You can you can certainly breathe that mixture, although you, you tend to get uh, uh, intoxicated if there's too much argon. Um, Got to keep the balance right. But um, uh, one of the things they do is they use the sky as a giant neon light uh, and light their <laughs> cities that way. Um, uh, so it's a, it's an incredible place of uh, bizarre environments, another world. Uh, has cities uh, under the ice in a, a European kind of uh, environment of uh, a global ocean under a, a, an ice cap. Uh, and another one is lit- a literal uh, cloud civilization of uh, of aerostats, uh, two-mile-wide uh, spheres um, with uh, life support inside them floating in the, the sky of a uh, super-Earth. Um, so, there's nothing like Earth out there, but there's things that are really cool and places that have thrived using the lockstep method. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, the the Europa like world you mentioned, I thought it was really interesting. You describe how the it has water toward the core, and the gravitational force actually compresses the water the farther, the deeper you get into a substance harder than steel.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you don't want to. Uh, Uh, go down too far in that world. You certainly don't want to drown. They'll never find (laughs) you. But uh, uh, there's that and there's of course the impossible cold that you have to deal with. But uh, um, what happens is that during these brief month-long flowerings the the people in the lockstep uh, extravagantly use their energies to turn their back on all these harsh conditions and uh, create uh, earth-like or uh, exotic but uh, wonderful environments for themselves. And to them, that's their whole life. They live that way all the time. Uh, so it's not a bleak and cold place for them at all.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: another idea I really liked was this idea that Toby's been in suspended animation for 12,000 years, and so that means that there's been 12,000 years for new diseases to develop that he might be susceptible to.
2: Yeah. Um, there's, uh, there's been civilizations risen and fallen, languages, cultures, um, religions come and gone. Uh, but because the lockstep's always there, it's, um, uh, it's developed into a kind of backup for humanity and for human civilization. So, you know, um, some catastrophe will, will happen, uh, road AIs become godlike and, and, and devour everything or, uh, human civilizations fight wars and blow up each other's planets and uh, everyone gets knocked back to the Stone Age. And then the lockstep wakes up. They they look around and say, oh, it happened again. Uh, and they send their people in and they rebuild the civilization. And over uh, you know, tens of thousands of years, it happens repeatedly. And they're always there to pick up the pieces. Uh, so they they, yeah, they literally do a backup and restore on um, uh, human civilization repeatedly. Um, one of the reasons they can do this is because, of course, they're so insignificant as far as everyone else is concerned. Um, they are in suspended animation nearly all the time. And they're in the places no one wants to go to, these little worlds between the stars. So and no one has any incentive to go after them.
3: Hmm.
1: Well, yeah, and then another interesting implication of that is that the newest immigrants to the lockstep civilizations have the longest cultural histories.
2: Yeah, I'm still trying to wrap my my brain around that one. And I I wish, in in retrospect, that I had spent more time on this idea in the novel. I might have to write another book just to to follow this thread. But yeah, the people who started the lockstep, for them, only 40 years have passed, which is why Toby's brother and sister are still around. but for uh, uh, for people who are joining the lockstep now, who are recent immigrants, it's been around for over 10,000 years. It is literally the oldest, most stable culture that they know. And it's woven into all of the myths and stories that they know going back into the, the, the mists of time. So they are the ones who are most familiar with the lockstep uh and, and this paradox um is, is something uh, wow you could play with <laughs> <it> for <laughs> for ages so um yeah it's it's a fun concept, and one that i I sort of came across fairly late um in in the creative process because of course I was dealing with so many of the other implications as I went along um and uh, all, you know the other other possibilities it's quite possible that there's you know uh other implications that are equally um cool and bizarre that uh, we just haven't thought of yet.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So, I mean, do you have uh, specific plans to write any more fiction set in this uh, universe?
2: Well, I do have some ideas. Um, there's, there's ways to turn this around. Um, you can look at this civilization from within lockstep time or you can look at it from real time. And um, stories can be told from uh, from both points of view. And uh intersections uh can happen as well. I, I do have a short story set in the universe called uh, Jubilee, which uh you can download right now from uh it's a four a, a books original. Uh it's available on uh uh from say uh Kobo or Amazon. Uh it's like a dollar, two dollars download. Um that uh explores um, some of the real time Civilization implications of having a lockstep around if you live on a planet. Um, so there's many many possibilities yet in this world.
1: Yeah, and I guess pe- people can also read the story for free on tour.com uh, right now. At least that's what I did.
2: Oh um, ah, yeah,
1: yep. And I mean, I, it's a terrific story. Uh, I mean, it's uh, it's basically it's told from the point of view of as you say, people who live in real time, and it's and there's this kind of Romeo and Juliet. So, oh, why don't you well, why don't you tell tell us a little bit more about the story?
2: Sure. Um, it's, it's really a pretty banal story of young love <laughs> in some ways. It's, uh, it's two kids who meet and fall in love and exchange letters. But the thing is that they live in different locksteps. Uh, one lockstep could have a sleep to wake ratio of 360 to 1, so 360 months of sleep, one month awake. Another lockstep could have another ratio, let's say 270 months of sleep, one month awake. Um, This boy and this girl are from two locksteps that go in and out of uh, phase with one another. In other words, they're both awake at the same time, only once every 900 years of real time. And uh, in order to be able to courier their letters between them, they have to use the people who live in real time, who see both of the civilizations. when whenever they uh, whenever they awake, so they send their letters through a hereditary courier system, basically, and the story is of the last set of letters exchanged between them and uh, of the uh, the courier who delivers them
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, and it was so interesting to me because it's almost like you have this this legend, this famous story of young love, like Romeo and Juliet. That everybody knows, uh, you know, that's existed for thousands of years. But then, at this, it's still going on at the same time too. So it's almost like these ultimate kind of fans get to meet and interact with Romeo and Juliet in a way.
2: Yeah, uh, and there's, uh, if you just start to think about it, all kinds of other stories that uh, can be recast in the same way. I mean, Sleeping Beauty is the obvious one. Um, uh, but, uh, I, you know, I made myself a list one day of myths and legends that fit perfectly into the lockstep universe, and there's a whole bunch of them. <laughs> so, um uh, so I'm very pleased because in a way, it, it's like having discovered something. Um and, uh, now I get to explore it. But also, you know, uh, the readers get to explore it, and, uh, uh the writers get to explore it. Uh, now that the idea is out there, anybody can write a, uh, Uh, a story set in a universe like this. Uh, Mm. Nobody owns uh, these ideas. Um, So I'm curious to see what other people might uh, do with the the concept.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, to what extent are there precursors to this idea in science fiction that you're familiar with?
2: Uh, There are a lot. Um, uh, A lot of people have done similar things over the years. There's really no new ideas. You know, we all... uh, uh, borrow and steal from each other. Uh, so I'm not going to claim, uh, some kind of tremendous originality here. The, uh, uh, what lockstep is, is a synthesis of different ideas that people like, uh, uh, everyone from Fred Pohl to, um, uh, Greg Egan have played with uh, at one time or another. Um, There's lots of explorations of hibernation and its implications that have uh, been done um, and of uh, near light speed and of uh, deep space civilizations. Um, The the, the trick here is really only or the innovation is really only the synchronization of uh, the cicada cicada beds and uh, uh, the lockstep concept itself. Uh, the rest, you know, it's, uh, as I say, uh, very well-developed by many other writers over the years.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
1: Some people I saw online mentioned uh, Philip Jose Farmer's, I think it's called the Day World stories, where um, it's it's a much more modest thing. But the idea basically is that Earth is overpopulated. And so there's only, say, enough apartments for one-sixth of of the population. So, you know, 80% of the population at any given time is in hibernation. And right. then you wake up one day a week or something and share the same apartment with six other people who you never meet. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, uh, and I haven't read those stories, um, but it doesn't surprise me. Um, it never surprises me when I come up with an idea and I get really excited about it. And then I find out that somebody else did it, you know, potentially 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's fine. Um uh, and, uh, yeah, that is another thing that you can do with, uh, with the lockstep. In fact, uh, in, in the novel, we encounter plants where there are multiple locksteps that are, uh, out of phase with one another. And, uh, you know, they share the resources of, of, of the world, um, exactly as they, they do in, uh, a farmer's story. Um, but uh, as I say, you know, nothing is truly new. Uh, I'm not surprised that uh, that other people have done it before. Um, the thing is to, uh, you know, not say, oh, it's been done before and not try and do something new with it. Um, uh, all these ideas are playgrounds for us all to uh, try and extend and uh, uh, see what new things we can come up with. Yeah, and, and that's all I've done with locks. Then.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you mentioned that most of the labor in this universe is done by robots, and there was some really interesting economics in the in the sto- in the novel. Could you talk about that?
2: Yeah, uh, I I encountered a problem, and I, I've encountered this with most of my books actually, which um, uh, Frank Herbert encountered when he was writing Dune which, uh, of course, is that he wanted to have a particular kind of civilization. Um, But that civilization would be essentially ridiculous or impossible if artificial intelligence and robots existed. Um, So he, in in the case of Dune, um, used the Butlerian Jihad, um, this holy war to destroy artificial intelligences, Um, basically a political reason why there would not be um, AI in in that particular universe. Um, I did something sort of similar with the the technology in in Lockstep. It was going to be a world much like the world that Toby had known. In other words, his brother and sister don't change much, even though technology advances you know spectacularly quickly around them. They just basically draw a line in the sand and say, okay, if you're going to live here, you're going to live this way. But the, uh, the, the robot economy itself is, uh, uh, is essentially based on Rome. Now, rather than having um, hundreds of slaves, uh, each person in, uh, in the lockstep has uh, a number of robots. It's illegal for uh, corporations to own robots. They can only own single-purpose machines. Uh, only a uh, an individual can own robots. Um, so what people do is they send their ro- ro- robots out as uh, as a workforce, um, essentially as their slaves to do the work for them, um, and they reap the profits. Um, except that what happens in in, in the novel uh, is that some people um, subcontract to <laughs> some of the uh, the robots. Um, Saves wear and tear on the robots.
1: Mm. Well, you know, in in our just in our society right now, we're having an increasing problem of technology rendering labor obsolete. Um, do you think that th- this idea of banning corporations from owning robots has any sort of uh, analog to something we might try today?
2: Well, maybe uh, we we have this. Thing certainly in the u s uh, there 's this uh, uh, legal concept of the corporation as a as a legal individual um, which uh, always struck me as a kind of dodgy concept uh, <laughs> um, if a corporation can be a legal individual, then why not um, other things that are not strictly abstract entities like say uh, uh, ecosystems rivers uh mountains um there's, uh, there's a lot of flex and play in, uh, in what we can consider to be um, a person and what we consider uh, can own things. And actually, a lot of this is going to um, uh, be highlighted very strongly in the next few years as Bitcoin and the things that you can do with the Bitcoin protocol um, start to hit the mainstream. Because you can create structures like virtual uh virtual nations and virtual corporations uh on the bitcoin blockchain um so far from being abstract the issues like this are actually going to become concrete real fast for us
1: uh um but in, in terms of in in terms of labor i mean i will say actually i saw a um i went to a lecture recently by Jaron Lanier. He wrote a book called Who Owns the Future, and his his solution to this problem of technology making obs- uh, making labor obsolete was something along the lines of micropayments for uh, any time you did something useful on the internet. Um, okay. I've also heard, you know, like in Switzerland, they're experimenting with just a certain guaranteed minimum income for everybody, so it doesn't matter if technology renders all labor obsolete, everyone's still provided for, in a sense. Um,
2: yeah, uh, a guaranteed minimum wage is kind of a no-brainer. We, we've experimented with it both in, in the U.S. and up here in Canada. Uh, and uh, the experiments, uh, the Canadian experiments, are quite successful. Um, uh, if you don't have a structure like that, eventually you get to a situation where uh, no, you don't need the workforce at all, but then you also don't have any consumers. You have no one to buy the products that you're making uh, if they don't have some source of income. Uh, so, either you jack up corporate taxes and feed that back to people as a uh, uh, as a guaranteed minimum income, or you find out some other way of continuing the circulation of wealth through society so that it actually produces more wealth um, otherwise it just gets concentrated there's a kind of singularity event and uh, <laughs> and that 's it uh. Uh-huh.
1: I actually saw you say on Twitter, you said this conversation has me wondering about leapfrogging guaranteed basic income via guaranteed ownership of certain assets.
2: Uh, yeah, the, I mean, that's just one thing I, you know, I floated out there. Uh, another idea that uh, I've been exploring over the last few days uh, is uh, uh, the idea of a smart currency, a self-redistributing currency. In other words, it's a Bitcoin-like currency that, um looks around itself in the wallet and says, oh, there's a million other of me here. Um, It's too crowded in here, I'm going (laughs) to leave. And, uh, uh, you know, if there gets to be too much concentration of wealth, the currency itself, uh, not any kind of legislature or any kind of uh, body or any, any kind of human power structure, but the currency itself redistributes a small fraction of itself into empty wallets on a random basis. Um, you can do this with the kinds of smart currencies that uh, are made possible by Bitcoin. Uh, so, you know, that's another example of a, a possible way to approach the problem. Uh, and I'm sure there are, are, are many others. You can attach these ideas to various ideologies. And in fact, that's what you find with uh, the various altcoins that are being created uh, around the Bitcoin. Protocol right now. People are creating altcoins, uh, which represent one or some other, uh, political ideology or economic ideology. But you can also just approach this as a pragmatic problem, um, a, a, a problem in, in systems design, if you will, that, the, uh, in the end, the solution might end up appearing to be capitalist, socialist, Something else that we don't even have, have never even, you know, imagined before. Um, but the point is to uh think of imaginative ways to solve the problem.
1: Uh, I saw recently Charles Strauss had an essay that unfortunately I didn't get a chance to really read, but he was basically arguing from what I gathered that Bitcoin was going to be a catastrophe. Do you did you see that?
2: Yeah, I'm aware of the essay and uh, um. My interest is not in Bitcoin as a currency, uh, despite what I've just said. Um, Bitcoin is uh, the first throw uh, of uh, a completely new game. Um, And uh, regardless of the deficiencies of Bitcoin itself, uh, the protocols that lie behind it are the important thing. And uh, the, the problems that have been solved in creating it, uh, are far more important than uh, the details of bitcoin itself um, there are uh, issues of trust societal trust of of law of governance uh, in general that have been solved in the creation of bitcoin and um, uh, so for me bitcoin itself is a distraction uh it, it's it's taking us away from from examining the deeper implications of what the the blockchain technology is actually capable of.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, I mean, speaking of the law, there's a very interesting scene in Lockstep, uh, a scene in a courtroom um, that that essentially seems to suggest that in the future, AIs will make juries and judges and lawyers all obsolete. Um, Do you think that's where we're headed?
2: Well, uh, we're headed there within about six months uh, in terms of uh contract law. Uh there is a uh project called the Ethereum project that is uh uh using the blockchain technology, again the technology behind Bitcoin, not Bitcoin itself, um to create smart contracts and uh Uh, What you can do when you have a smart contract is uh, the contract itself lives in the internet. It's fully distributed, decentralized, not controllable um, by uh, any central uh, authority. Um, But you can build things like corporations out of it. You can essentially create the uh, the legal contractual structure of a corporation. Within the decentralized uh, blockchain uh, and uh, it is a kind of automaton it uh, It will follow the rules that have been laid down for it to the letter. It will never cheat. Uh, you can open source it so everyone can see the code and everyone can see exactly what it uh, what it does on the blockchain. Um, it will never cheat. it will always follow the rules um and it will function as the uh, uh the architecture, if you will, of a company. Uh that is
3: 2014.
2: Hmm. Wow. So, so I guess- uh so if if I'm claiming uh in lockstep that at some point uh legal apparatus um <laughs> might be replaced by uh, uh computerized systems, uh I'm only barely avoiding being out of date. (laughs)
1: Um, I think another really interesting thing in the book is uh, some of the politics involved. I mean, um, on one world that Toby visits, there's something called the uh, Demarche model, where there's a woman who, by some statistical process, has been chosen uh, to be a representative.
2: Yeah. um, uh, There's a a network... uh, Protocol uh, called uh, promise theory, um, where uh, basically the nodes in the network um, do not inherently trust one another. They make promises, and you build up the network according to who actually follows through on their promises. One of the things they found with uh, creating networks in promise theory was that uh, these networks tended to develop delegation uh, as an emergent property. Uh, certain nodes would be delegated authority by other nodes because it was simply cheaper in, in competing cycles. Uh, and the reason is that, uh, uh, let's flip this around to human beings. If you as a voter know somebody who always votes the way you vote, um, why not hand them your vote so you don't have to bother with the process? This is what delegation of authority actually is. Uh, and it's actually something you can model um and uh, uh build as a network process um so you know thousands or millions of people uh vote exactly the same way as this one particular woman um in uh in the civilization in lockstep so she is actually made into their delegate by the system itself uh she's not voted in she doesn't run a campaign she's just designated as um their representative. Because, you know, she always votes the way they would vote. Mm-hmm. I
1: actually heard you say that in one of your earlier novels, you said that you came up with something like four different new political systems. Um, are there any other political ideas like that that you've come up with that you're particularly uh, want to share with people?
2: Oh, well, uh, yeah. In, in, in my 2005 novel, uh, Lady of Mazes, yes, I, I was inventing political systems left, right and center, uh, just because of the way I, I built the world. Um, that's a, a novel that explores the idea uh that technology is legislation that uh uh introducing a technology is functionally equivalent to legislating some change in society uh and in lady of mazes uh people have the legal right to determine what technologies will be allowed in their in their vicinity shall we say in their in their little slice of reality um, because if you don't have that right if you if you if you can't control the technology um, that operate around you uh, then you don't control part of the legislative landscape that controls your rights essentially um, so in the course of exploring that idea uh, I did have to um, or I uh, you know naturally came up with Uh, a bunch of different ways of uh, of, uh, governing. Um, It was a lot of fun.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, great. Um, See, back in episode 62, uh, I had my friend Tobias Bacall on the show to talk about ecology and science fiction. And in that episode, he said I had to ask you about your idea of thaliens. And so I guess this is my chance. I think this is what you were alluding to earlier when you were talking about uh, the personhood of mountains and streams and things like that. But could you... uh, elaborate on what you mean by thalians?
2: Yes, it's a a kind of thorny problem. uh, This came up in my first novel, uh, uh, Ventus. Um, One of the questions I was trying to answer was, if you create an artificial intelligence that can uh, think about the world and uh, see problems and try and solve them on its own, is this your own hand in the puppet? Um, or is this something independent of you? Is this something different? Uh, in Inventus, a uh, nanotech-based terraforming system um, uh, fails to recognize the human colonists when they arrive on a planet and knocks them back into the Stone Age. And uh, this system, which is an artificially intelligent distributed uh, system that... Basically, is woven through the entire ecosystem and controls the ecosystem. Is essentially the representative of the trees, the trees and the, uh, the, the the plants and the grass and the animals and the bird. Um, and uh, because it has gone its own way, it develops its own perspective essentially. And uh, that is what I call fallings. The You could call it the awakening of nature. Um, If you flip that back to current day and uh, to the world we live in now, you can imagine um, giving a pot of whales a Bitcoin wallet um, and giving that same pot of whales a a distributed autonomous corporation. The the Bitcoin or or uh, Ethereum-based corporate structure I was talking about earlier And having it sell its ecosystem services online, Uh, you could do the same with a watershed or a river. Uh, Already in several nations in South America, uh, natural systems uh, are recognized as having rights. Uh, This is not going to be too long before this becomes a pretty common way to view natural systems uh, worldwide. Um, rights to nature is not uh, so crazy an idea as you might think because uh, natural systems are already realizing our participants in the economy anyway. Um, we tend to call them externalities, but in fact, uh, for instance, the wetlands around Toronto, uh, what we call the Toronto Green Belt, um, they purify and clean the, the water that uh, flows down uh, to Toronto and to uh, Lake Ontario, um, to replace that service with um, water treatment plants would cost X number of billion dollars. So you can say that that watershed, the, the Toronto or the, uh, the Greenbelt, uh, is worth or provides X billion dollars worth of ecosystem services. And if it already does that, uh, why not give it its own corporation why not give it its uh its uh, its own fallacy essentially
1: mm-hmm. yeah and these are all such interesting ideas and can't really be covered in too much depth in the time we have for this segment uh, well, if,
2: well i've written hundreds of thousands of yeah <laughs> and i haven't been able to cover them adequately either
1: <laughs> but so so people should definitely check out your novels ventus and lady of mazes and are there other like websites or essays or things they should look into
2: uh, well, you can certainly check out, uh, 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 the stuff going on around Bitcoin. And so it would be projects like uh, Ethereum, Um uh, that, w- that would be ethereum.org. Uh, and, uh, uh many of the altcoins, um, like Nextcoin, which are, uh, using, uh, alternative, uh, approaches to, to solve the same problems with Bitcoin. Um, but there's oh, there's just so much out there and uh, so many interesting things going on around governance and uh, uh, and economics. Uh, a, a kind of sudden explosion in this space that I don't think any of us anticipated. Um, so uh, a lot of fun to be had in, in following through on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, and then another thing I really wanted to ask you about is you have a story in Neil Stevenson's Hieroglyph Anthology. Yeah. Um, tell, tell us about that story.
2: Uh, that story covers a lot of the ground that we've just been talking about. Um, uh, the hieroglyph project um, uh, is a brilliant idea from Neil Stephenson. Um, the, the, a hieroglyph, um, in, in his language, is well. Take the rocket ship with fins, the classic uh, image of uh, you know the the golden age space opera rocket ship. That's a hieroglyph it encapsulates a whole vision of the future, essentially. And what Neil wants to do is, uh, uh, deliberately try and invent the next hieroglyph. The, the idea, the image, the, uh, the vision that will, um, direct an entire generation of kids to become scientists and engineers and problem solvers. Um, so he's brought a bunch of people together to, uh, uh, write stories and try and craft hieroglyphs and uh, uh, my story in that anthology is about governance it's about um, if you will a governance singularity event um, and uh, uh, I will freely admit there will be no Facebook of governance um, governance and government are wicked problems. They are complex, multifaceted. They don't consist of just one problem, and there will never be just one solution. But uh, uh, the story admits this and, and, and shows how solutions from all kinds of different directions can converge um, in the very near future on a staggering new vision of, uh, of how we govern ourselves.
1: Uh, I mean, on Twitter, you said that in this story, you talk about a website where the only stance allowed is agreement. You can either agree or remain silent.
2: Yes. Uh, Why would you do that? Well, uh, it's because um, uh, right now the Internet is an argument machine. Uh, Internet forums are basically designed to uh, cause people to have disagreements and fallout uh, from one another. Um, But they don't have to be. Uh, if you study the the way that people reach agreement one of the uh, the core issues is um, that people disagree because they don't share the same understanding of the meaning of words um, in, uh, in in the story the, the the website is simply a place where you can define a term or define a concept and say this is what I think it means um, and I other people can either agree with you about that or not the community that grows up around uh, shared agreements of the meaning of terms and concepts is a community that can solve problems together. Um, even if they don't agree on, you know, their, their actual politics, the fact that they agree on what they're talking about in the first place means that they can actually move forward. Uh, what happens on the internet all the time is that, uh, people get into arguments uh, in, in these forums uh, because they don't even know that the other guy is talking about something completely different using the same words. And that's just an example of one of the the, the small problems that amplifies itself into making the world an ungovernable mess, uh, but that's solvable. Uh, and if we did solve it using a, a, a just a particular architecture of, how our online forums work, um, then we might have a very disproportionate effect on um, how people cooperate.
3: Hmm.
1: All right, and then uh, in addition to writing science fiction, you're also, you also do futurism, essentially, of uh, strategic foresight. Um, and maybe just, uh, you, you work for this uh, organization called Idea Couture. Maybe could you just talk about what you've been doing with them and um, you know, what's coming up for you?
2: Sure. Uh, Idea Couture is a, uh, a full-service consultancy, and uh, uh, our, our clients are some of the biggest uh, companies in the world. We have offices uh, all over the world, um, and uh, I'm one of the, uh, uh, the, the futurists, essentially, uh, working at the company. Um, we explore strategic foresight, which is basically um, uh, solving the problems that people haven't realized our our problems yet. Uh, We don't try and predict the future. Um, Anyone who says they can predict the future is either crazy or lying. Um, (laughs) What we do is look for the places where uncertainty lies, um, where there are critical uncertainties that might affect uh, an organization or or a business. Um, And then we explore those with the client. Find strategies and approaches that are resilient because uh you can imagine them working in an, a, a variety of different possible futures um and then help the client to uh to implement those it's one of the services of id which also has a unique uh, uh approach to um using anthropology and uh, ethnography to uh, uh explore uh, business and uh, uh, consumer spaces um, uh, and it's, it's just a very creative environment to work in uh so i'm having a lot of fun there. Mm-hmm. I mean could you give me maybe an
1: example of one of the things you you came up with that you're particularly proud of?
2: Um well actually i'll give you an, an example uh not from me but from uh uh, uh my associate uh, J.R. Lafontaine. Uh we were talking about uh, an idea i called forward uh, warehousing where uh, If you have drone transport, you can create a value proposition such as uh, five minutes or it's free. Um, uh, You can do that by distributing your warehouse goods throughout a city in small shipping containers. Um, If you've got enough of them uh, and drones transport items very quickly, um, you can always be less than five minutes away from uh, uh, the customer. I thought this was kind of a cute idea, but JR, uh took it one step further and said, well, why don't we add in the idea of the sharing economy to this? Um, you know, people are doing car sharing and all these things. Why not trunk sharing? So you have the, 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 the you know, how much space is unused in the trunk of your car at any one time? Uh, most people probably, you know, have uh, almost nothing in their, in their their trunks. Well, why not use that as your distributed warehouse. Um, so you have this vision of cars and parking lots spontaneously popping their, their trunks open and, um, drones coming out and delivering anything from scotch to, to medicine to, uh, um, to pizzas to, uh, <laughs> people nearby five minutes or free, Um, and the people who own the cars getting a, a, a tiny cut of that as part of the sharing economy. Um, Lots of fun. Uh, I have no idea whether it, w- it would ever be done, but I don't see any reason why it couldn't. Hmm. All right, great.
1: So um, I guess just finally, do you have any other books coming out or projects you want to mention?
2: Um, I, uh, I I just heard that a, a, a military foresight exercise I, I did about five years ago, the crisis in earlier, um, uh, I wrote a fictionalized scenario of a future military operation. Um, uh, that's being published now. Uh, I'm not sure that that's actually available to the general public, but um, uh, but that's, it's quite a lot of fun. Uh, it was an interesting, uh, uh blend of science fiction and, uh, uh, uh foresight. Um, so I'm, I'm happy that that's coming out. And I do have a, uh, a couple of secret projects that I can't talk about, unfortunately. Um, so there's more stuff in the offing. But the, the next major thing, um, uh, I think, coming down the pipeline will be the uh, hieroglyph project, which is looking more and more exciting by the day.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I guess we could just say about that um, that other project, that essentially the Canadian military hired you to fictionalize a scenario to make it more uh, digestible to military personnel right
2: uh yeah it's um uh, it's not so much that but that when you turn a set of concepts into fiction you uncover all kinds of uh hidden assumptions um simply by telling a story you realize oh well that actually wouldn't work would it um so telling a story by itself is an analytical tool and i uh, i've done this twice now the the, the first time was um a uh, project called Crisis in Zephyra um, uh, uh, for the same group, uh, the Canadian military. That uh, uh, was excerpted in Harper's Magazine a few years back, um, and uh, this is essentially the sequel to that. Uh, I'm fascinated by the intersection of rigorous analysis and uh, sort of loose storytelling uh, and how you can end up having a kind of rigorous storytelling uh, come out of it. And uh, so these projects are sort of dear to me, even though they they might not be uh, to more than a subset of the, the, uh, you know, the rest of the world. But uh, for me, they represent the, uh, uh, the place where science fiction meets reality and uh, the world can actually be changed by it.
1: Mm -hmm. All right, great. So, I mean, we could, keep talking about this stuff all day but unfortunately I think we should wrap this up now but I'm sure lots of people will want to go check out your books including your latest book Lockstep which I highly recommend
2: That's going to be out on March the 25th Uh, I'm going to be having a book launch here in uh, Toronto at uh, Back of Books uh, down on Harvard uh, on the 29th at 3 o'clock so uh, anyone in the would come on down
1: all right, great. So we're going to wrap things up there. And uh, Carl Schrader, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Thank you. It was a lot of fun.
1: And that was our interview. So thanks so much to Carl Schrader for joining us on the show. And as I mentioned, our panel topic today will be Ender's Game and Philosophy. And this panel will definitely involve spoilers for Ender's Game. So before listening, you might want to go read the book. And I'm joined today by two guest geeks. So first up, we've got D.E. Witkower. He's an assistant professor of philosophy at Old Dominion University, whose work focuses on digital culture. He edited the books Ender's Game in Philosophy and Philip K. Dick in Philosophy, and has also written articles on Full Metal Alchemist, the iPod, and Occupy Wall Street. So Dylan, welcome to the show. Great, thank you. And also joining us today is Ashley Shu. She's an assistant professor at Virginia Tech, whose work focuses on the uses of technology. She's written articles on nanotech and animals using tools, and also had an article in Ender's Game and Philosophy called Every Breath You Take, about the use of technology to monitor children. So Ashley, welcome to the show.
4: Thank you so much for having me.
1: All right, and so we're going to start out and just talk a little bit about how we first encountered Ender's Game. And I'll start. It's pretty simple. My parents are both big science fiction fans, so I don't know. I was probably about eight or nine, and they just handed it to me and told me to read it. And I just absolutely loved it. And I think if you're a, a nerdy kid who gets bullied and likes video games and stuff, Andrew's Game just really connects with you in a, in a really, really powerful way. So I just absolutely loved it. I, throughout my teenage years, I probably read it over twenty times. I don't even know. And so that's basically me. Uh, and so Dylan, how did you first encounter Andrew's Game?
0: I have no idea. Uh, I, I, I think I must have read it. Um... Either in like eighth or ninth grade, around then, uh, but I, I have no idea how I came across it. I I bet I found it in my older brother's room. He was a, a, a fan of uh, of science fiction stuff, and and um, was something of a, a a taste guide for me. The the stuff that he was into was generally good.
1: Uh, and did you really connect with the Ender's Game the way sort of were you like were you bullied and a nerdy kid and stuff like that and. Um,
0: I don't know. I guess, but that—that I don't think that was really a strong connection for me with the book. I think for me, it was—it was just the sort of um, two senses of wonder that come from the book. The one sense of wonder from the battle room about like being able to think in this way, spatially uh, and and strategically. Uh, and m- managing coordinated activity in this very open three-dimensional uh, creative space, and that was really exciting. Um, and then the, the the moral free play that comes from the uh, the terrible situation, and where this leads uh, Ender and everyone else.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we're certainly going to be talking about that today. Um, but before we get to that, Ashley, how did you first encounter Ender's Game?
4: Well, I was older than you. Uh, I was 16, um, and had a, uh, summer Presbyterian regional mission trip thing, um, in Puerto Rico. Um, and another kid, I, I had already dabbled in Asimov, um, the gateway drug. Um, and, um, I was told by this other kid that I had to read Orson Scott card, that it was going to change my life. Um, that I could figure out the universe and love and how it all fit together and, um, and I was told, you know, in no short terms that the Bible wasn't going to, uh, you know, explain a lot of things to me that Orson Scott Card could, uh, hmm. which is a weird thing uh, to be told on a Presbyterian trip um, hmm. uh, when you're just hanging out with um, some of your new friends. Um, so I was told and I, I immediately picked the books up and read um, the trilogy and then the quadrology, I guess. Um, uh, and I loved them. Um, they were wonderful. And I didn't know about all of Orson Scott Card's religious weirdness. Um, at that point, I was just, um, and I, I didn't love Ender's Game the most. I love Speaker for the Dead. Um, mm-hmm. the idea that, um, uh, well, I guess I shouldn't get into that since this is about, uh, Ender's Game, uh, particularly, but, um, um, Ender's Game was moving, but it was the later books that, uh, really stirred something exciting in me.
1: Uh, all right, cool. So let's talk about this book, Ender's Game and Philosophy. Uh, so Dylan, how did this book come about?
0: Um well I did, uh, I had written for this series before uh, several times this was the, my uh, fifth book in this series so um I'm I'm used to organizing these 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 works on uh, popular culture and philosophy and when I heard for the first time that this movie was actually happening that you know finally it wasn't just vague rumors but that, that a movie was going to uh, finally happen from this book um I immediately said, okay, yeah, th- that's great. That-, that will provide a market for us to, uh, to produce this um, philosophical work on this book. Um, uh, and I already knew the, uh, the the relevant publisher and editor, so I just uh, called them up and made a very brief pitch. And they said, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Let's do it.
1: Hmm. And how did you go about lining up the contributors? Did you know who was an Ender's Game fan, or did you have to ask people? or?
0: Yeah, the, the way that uh the way that I usually do this, the way that we usually do these volumes in general, is we put out uh, a call for proposals. So this goes out to various philosophy email listservs. And it's just a, a brief thing saying, hey, we're putting this book together. We want proposals, proposals should look like this, possible topics might include, and you know, send them to us by this date.
1: So if there are any philosophers uh, listening to this who might want to write for one of these books, what sort of listservs should they be following?
0: Um, yeah, the, the probably the two main listservs are a, a sort of U.S.-centric one, Phil Updates, and then a U.K. and Europe-centered one,
1: Philos-L. So everyone, check those out. And so, uh, Ashley, how did you get involved with this project?
4: Well, I... Uh... I've known Dylan for a while and I've seen a couple of the other book projects he's done. And I saw on Phil updates, um, this being advertised. And I've never been tempted to do one of uh, Dylan's popular culture books before, just because I didn't, I wasn't as interested in the subject matter, but when I heard he was doing Ender's game, I crapped myself. I was so excited. Hmm. Um, and I, you know, it took a while to figure out what I wanted to do, but I think as soon as I had seen the email within a day, I had already written up my proposal and had my fingers crossed. Um, Uh, Just because I'm so interested in the subject matter and Ender's Game provides so much um, for discussion that I knew the book would be great. And I know Dylan's a great editor, so um, he'd make us all sound good, even if we're not naturally um, good at writing for popular audiences.
1: Uh And I mentioned uh, in your introduction that your your piece was about monitoring children. You wanted to say a bit about how you came to that topic?
4: Um. Well, I've always been struck by the monitors and how they're used um, to watch over Ender. And I'd recently read Ender's Shadow, which says more about the monitors um, and how the children are watched. And um, I have two small children myself, and we use, you know, baby monitors to listen in on their conversations when they're upstairs. And, and it just struck me as something that could be, like, really sinister, even though I'm using it for good. So I wanted to sort of explore... Um, how this technology is uh, can be used for not such great things, even though we think of it um, in our daily lives as you know being great. I can check up on my children, no problem.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and you you talk in your article about your ambivalence about continuing to monitor your kids as they become teenagers and, and so on. And uh, I, I feel like society has gotten more and more overprotective almost of, of kids, particularly as they get into adolescence. I saw this interesting article where it was like they showed a map of where the grandfather, th- these uh, three generations had lived in the same town, and the grandfather was allowed to explore this area, and then mm. the father was allowed to explore this much, much smaller area, and the son was essentially not allowed to leave his yard, <laughs> right?
4: Yeah, yeah, no, it means childhood used to be, um, you know, you go outside and play on your own with, you know, your buddies that you meet, hanging out in wherever you are, but more and more we're drawing perimeters, putting up fences, not letting our kids leave yards um, in the way we used to. And I mean, it certainly has been a huge shift and we are monitoring them. I mean, studies show that we're spending more time with our kids, which I mean, is good, right? We're spending more time with our kids, but at the same time, our kids are under our direct supervision um, for much longer times in their lives um and you get the whole phenomena of helicopter parenting um that's become more of an issue and i don't know i i feel like we should be deeply ambivalent and that children do need privacy and an ability to uh do things outside of their parents control i hope this doesn't come back to bite me in the ass when my kids get older (laughs) um (laughs) i mean there there's I I I worry about this. I don't know that I have any uh, good solutions for it, but I think Ender's Game gives us one. You know, ultra monitored situation where things are absolutely, you know, evil for the children.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, and, and I mentioned that one of the things that really captured my imagination as a kid was just the way that Ender's Game portrayed bullying and mm-hmm. this, the bullying. We really see it comes to a head when en- when Ender at the beginning of the novel has his monitor removed, and suddenly the o- other kids who all dislike him, know that the adult, adults aren't watching him at all times anymore. Mm-hmm. And we have this scene where this bull uh, Ender fights this bully Stilson and gets him on the ground. And it's essentially won the fight at that point and has the opportunity to walk away. But he chooses to just completely you know beat he turns out beat this kid to death, but but beat him, you know, really, really badly mm-hmm. when he's down, um, on the uh the premise that this will prevent other kids from that, that he'll scare the other kids so badly that they won't want to ever mess with him again.
4: Yeah, and that ethos goes, I mean, you see Ender using that reasoning over and over. I mean, he beats someone not just enough, but enough to annihilate, and it's why they use him. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: yeah. But so, I mean, Dylan, what do you think of that scene? I mean, do, what do you think of both, is this an effective strategy to get people not to mess with you, and is it an ethical strategy? What do you think about that?
0: Yeah, I've mostly thought about this in terms of just war theory. So in terms of, I mean, it's, it, we read this today, uh, even though Card couldn't have possibly written in this way, of course, but we read this today in terms of the Bush Doctrine, that we need to um, you know, voluntarily take on the position of the aggressor in order to forestall future confrontation uh because you know obviously what he's doing here is he's moving beyond uh a proportional response to a conscientiously disproportional response uh as a as a uh deterrent uh so you know it's very it's very consciously taking on the the position not of self defense but uh as future self defense against future non actual and you know possibly Never to be actualized aggression uh, to engage in preemptive aggression. <laughs> um, the uh, uh, there are plenty of other historical precedents that uh, that we can turn to and that should come to mind here. Uh, ones that, since in 1984, they were in fact in the past rather than the future. Uh, uh, ones that it's much more likely Card was in fact thinking about. Um, <laughs> So uh, things like the uh, the, the firebombing of Dresden, uh, the the just massive disproportional violence that we saw in World War II, uh, of course, with, with Hiroshima ultimately.
4: Dylan, do you think the commentary in Ender's Game is one to justify a lot of these things? Because, I mean, it seems like we're supposed to see ender as a victim and as a pawn and i mean most of the people who are reading this i mean even our host here talks about how he related to it i mean people who have been bullied um i mean i certainly related to um that aspect and you kind of want to cheer for ender at the same time he's doing these horrible things
0: yeah yeah and that's that's a really problematic aspect of this i mean if if we if we fall into that too quickly then we end up in this situation where where something like the bush doctrine which is you know very troubling even if we want to accept it it's very troubling and it and it uh, you know directly Mm -hmm. flies in the face of um you know maybe 1500 years of just war theory now with that said there's so much else about the book that, that drives us to question that. Um, you know, of course, that it turns out to uh, 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 have been unnecessary. Uh, but that's ambiguous because, you know, how we have known that it was unnecessary. It's sort of like with the, the missing weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. You know, the claim was we can't let the smoking gun be a mushroom cloud. You know, the the outcome for not taking aggressive action right now is so severe that it justifies what otherwise is uh, an illegal aggression.
1: Right. I mean, like in the book, you mentioned this philosopher, Michael Walter, yeah. uh, who has this idea of the supreme emergency. Uh-huh. And it seems like the situation faced by the international fleet and enders game is like the ultimate supreme emergency, right? The entire existence of the human race is at risk in this conflict and so in that context like what you know how much risk is acceptable when what's at stake is the existence of the human species right um i mean ashley what do you think about the way that the if handles the bugger threat in ender's game
4: i mean i guess i reject a lot of uh what builds up in Ender's game. I mean, people are defined in particular ways and they have to follow through given how they've been described. But if I were um, put in charge, I think I'd try to refuse to play like Ender did at one point until he was convinced by Valentine to go back. I would try to utterly deny any involvement in this um, and try to get away. Um, in a way, Ender certainly does. Um, I don't think Colonel Graff tries to get out of it. He just tries to to do his job. Uh, but he's part of a military structure that uh, pushes him in that way.
1: Because, I, I mean, it just seems to me that part of the the big tragedy of Ender's Game is that many of the characters are acting in what they see as the best interests of humanity. But in the end, it com- it, they end up doing this horrible, unnecessary, brutal war crime, sort of.
4: Yeah. Well, part of what I enjoy about this book um, is it, Reveals how dirty consequentialism is, right? Um, this book, Everyone is a Dirty Consequentialist. The ends justify the means. We're all working towards this end. Even Valentine, the sweetest character in the book, um, gets enlisted by Colonel Graff. Um, and it makes everyone's hands look dirty with this consequentialism that you only care about the ends. And when you only care about the ends, um, everything turns to shit. <laughs>
1: Uh, I mean, Dylan, what do you think, do, what, do you agree with that, that this uh, shows up the downsides of consequentialism?
0: Yeah, certainly. Uh, and and there's throughout, that consequentialist perspective is depicted as non-optional throughout. So, mm-hmm. like, and there's attempt to drop out. It's like, well, you can't, you can't just opt out of this situation that humanity is in. And so, you know, it doesn't make sense just to say, well, you know, I just prefer not to, you know, do this stuff.
4: Uh, do everyone because, has to play. I mean, that's what's going on in the book. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and it, it actually reminds me a lot of Emmanuel um, uh, Kant's discussion of just war theory in his essay, Perpetual Peace. Uh, he outlines a series of rules that need to be followed if we're ever going to reach lasting international peace he actually says standing armies need to be abolished if we're ever going to have peace because otherwise what will happen is we put we put together one standing army and then everyone around us says well you know they're peaceful but what if they they're not peaceful tomorrow we need to be ready So everyone ends up preparing for war, even though no one's interested in in war. And then eventually someone needs to make the first strike because if they don't, then if the other person decides that they're going to make the first strike, then they'll win. (laughs) And so you have to make the first strike because someone else might actually just be interested in making the first strike because they think that you might someday be interested in making the first strike in case they happen to become aggressive at some point, which they're not. And so peaceful nations are forced into war.
1: Uh, well it seems like the buggers would have been safer if they had just dismantled their army right like if there had been no bugger fleet and humanity had humanity had come to the bugger home worlds with no and ne- never met any resistance and saw that they had no weapons the whole situation would have been solved right
0: yeah yeah and i think you're right and i think you know it's not just the humans who are at, at fault here um the not just in the misunderstanding of the first two invasions, but as you suggest, if the buggers really wanted to say, like, "Hey, we didn't know what was up," um, then they they should have stood down.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Actually, you know, speaking of Kant, uh, I thought it was really interesting in the book that Kant imagined a uh, an alien race, sort of like the buggers. That was news to me.
0: Yeah, yeah from the from the anthropology. Yeah, it's a really weird thing. Uh, I mean, Kant, he wanted to try to talk about pure reason in a way that would be, um, you know, just looking at what was logically necessary for pure reason. And that meant that whatever he said would have to apply to any being with reason. And that, that included non-human corporeal mm-hmm. beings. Uh, it also included, like, angels. Um and i it's it's hard to know exactly how much he was thinking about this in terms of like likelihood uh whether it was aliens or or angels thinking about like hey these things are probably out there so i should talk about them he was probably just saying these things are conceptually possible so i need to talk about them
4: kant is still going to look at the individual as the source of reason and i'm not sure um that the buggers can be made sense of as individuals in the way um Kant kind of would have thought about it i mean because he's still thinking about individuals whether they're humans animals angels whatever um they are the source of reason and those are the things that we have to look at i mean maybe the queen would just count
0: yeah i th- I, I think uh certainly any sensible interpretation of this would have to say only the queen counts, and we have mm. to understand all the soldiers as just, you know, disconnected parts of her body.
3: Mm. Uh,
0: that you know, they're, they're uh, non contiguous body parts, and that's kind of the end of it. Mm. Uh, because, as you say, yeah, they, they, they don't have the capacity for reason, so they can't possibly count as persons for Kant.
1: Okay, cool. So um, I also wanted to talk about uh, Valentine and Peter Wiggin. Um, what do you guys think of uh, Valentine's actions in the book? I mean, she's helping her brother, who's uh, a sort of diagnosable sociopath, but then he ends up bringing about world peace and just, you know, preventing a, possibly presenting a, an all-out war. So is Valentine, I don't know, what do we think about her her actions in the book?
4: Oh, I think she's the worst. Um, I think, you know, she's held up as this sort of moral paragon, you know, the one person Ender can trust. And she, I feel like she betrays him in the book when she goes to the pond and convinces him to go back in. I mean, this is a little boy who she's not protecting. Um, she's not the obvious sociopath like Peter is. Um, but in some ways, because of what she does to Ender, I think she's... About a million times worse. I would call her the worst person in the book if I had to.
1: But, I mean, given the information that she has, doesn't she think that Ender's actions are necessary to protect (sighs) Earth?
4: She does. But I still think that there are duties to protect children that um, override a lot of that. I mean, she sent him back to battle school. She sent him back to everything that was stressing him out that made him burn out and she knows full well that sending him back uh means the stress on him even if it means the benefit of the world i mean this is where consequentialism is dirty again
1: uh but <laughs> i mean but we do have to consider the consequences at some level right i mean i mean otherwise i mean if if we're going to consider a virtue ethics or something else instead um you know we would say like valentine would want to act in a way we would want valentine to act in an admirable way and that would be to act in the best interest of her beloved brother Mm -hmm. but then what are the consequences of that for the earth that could be very very dire indeed for all for all she knows
4: yeah no i i I agree with that um that i mean she's acting as a consequentialist as she ought to um i think in later books um valentine acts much less like a consequentialist and you see um, in the development of the series a move from a look at consequentialism to really an exploration of virtue ethics. Um, although now we're all, I got off of Ender's Game again and got into <laughs> the other books, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but it's hard for me to consider Valentine um, alone in this book.
1: Yeah. I mean, Dylan, do you think Valentine – I mean, there's a lot of bad people in this book. Do you
4: think,
1: <laughs> do you think uh, that Valentine is really the worst of them?
0: uh i i'm not sure i don't think so um I think probably i want to say peter's the worst uh but um yeah but 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 i think there there are very good reasons why we we react in this way to valentine so valentine is is in very much the same position that that uh, the graph is um but uh, and, and, and thinks about things in, in very much the same way, but we, we weight it differently because of, uh, her gender and because of the nature of the relationship that she has with Ender. Um, the place that she's stuck is in between two kinds of ethical demands, which are incompatible. Um, uh, and those are demands of justice and demands of care uh she due to her relationship, you know she has this particular obligation to look after her brother as her brother uh that you know their their relationship dictates that she show favoritism towards him, and that there's really an ethical imperative to uh to look after him and be in that relationship of special trust uh, and yet she's also um you're thinking on a on a world political level, uh, and capable of that, and and uh, in a, in a position to actually do something on that level too, and so the demands of justice, which which mean you know maybe sacrificing a child's uh, moral character, uh, not just you know making them them miserable, but making them in fact kind of a bad person on purpose. That maybe that's that's worth it and those those uh those moral hazards of the child soldier uh that Ender is is made to suffer that um that might be worth it, and so she's at this position of weighing care against justice and at least from the perspective of justice from traditional uh uh consequentialist and to some extent also duty-based uh, uh, moral theories if you put care above the universal if you put your particular commitments and your particular relationships above the greater good um, that that doesn't make you a good sister that makes you a horrible person that makes you selfish i also wanted to say Graf is in the same kind of position because he really does love ender and he's also in a relationship of trust with Ender in this sort of teacher and proxy parent kind of relationship. But we let him off the hook much more than we let Valentine off the hook. One is that that teacher relationship is much more attenuated, especially because it's in the military context where we expect commanders to to do bad things uh, <laughs> and to, to send people off to die and so on. That's not part of the normal brother-sister relationship. Uh, sending off your sibling to die, uh, so so that's one reason why we let him off the hook, even though he's in the same position of being at at the, the crossroads of of obligations of care or relationship of care, excuse me, and and obligations of justice.
1: Well, so why do you think that Peter is the worst of the characters?
0: Um, I I mean I think he's just the worst person, and in some sense that's. Kind of not his fault. (laughs) Um, He kind of got a bad draw in terms of moral character. Um, And what he does with that is actually really praiseworthy. It, It actually gets us into another weird issue in Kantian moral theory, where for Kant, what's praiseworthy, what's morally praiseworthy is when you do the right thing because it's the right thing. And so, somebody who is just all smiles and sweetness and light, and like just instinctually stops to help others because that's what that's what you do, um, is actually not terribly morally praiseworthy. Somebody who's morally praiseworthy for for Kant is somebody whose instincts are to be cruel and miserly, and who cares for others because because it's the right thing to do rather than because it's just instinctual. Peter's instincts are are the worst of anyone's, I think. Mm-hmm.
1: But it it's kind of interesting because Peter Peter's uh motives are th- are the worst, but essentially the impact of his actions are the yeah. best. Whereas Ender's motives are the best, but the impact of his actions are the worst.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean uh in saying I think Peter is the worst person, at the same time we might want to also call him really morally praiseworthy because not just his consequences are the best but what he does with his horrible moral instincts is is really transformative of himself ultimately too that he he becomes a good leader uh working from this terrible material uh and then uh yeah ender starts from really quite good material and then it's it's just constantly perverted so like the he wants to he wants to achieve peace and he does that through disproportionate violence against kids
1: uh uh-huh. i mean so i mean Ashley, what do you think about this this stuff we're saying about ender and peter do you uh do you, do
4: oh, you know? oh i i agree that peter starts out um the worst um uh, but he does I mean, he's a self-transformation story where you don't um, get that from nearly – you don't get that nearly so much from the other characters except for Ender, where the transformation by the end of the book is so radical. I mean, Graf and Valentine are um, much more static um, because they have certain roles to fill in the book uh but the contrast between Peter they go and Ender going opposite directions um is one of the more interesting uh, parts of Ender's game.
1: Mm. I mean another another uh, essay in the book that really made me think was there's one where it it brings up the issue of was and okay so at the end of the end of the book Ender finds that there he's wiped out the buggers but one of them is still alive this hive queen um egg and he preserves it and this essay makes the point uh Ender makes this decision that we think is probably the right decision, but he makes it without consulting anyone else. And does he have the right to decide uh, on, the, on behalf of all of humanity to preserve this potentially very dangerous uh, alien species?
4: I mean, all of humanity, in some sense, has betrayed Ender at this point. I don't think he has any reasonable way of thinking that um, what would happen to the Hive Queen would be anything except a sure and swift death. Um, and I think this this move, I mean, and and you see it in the later books is redemptive, um, that he can, you know, resurrect the species at some point, um, to sort of compensate for what he personally did to them. Um, even though he was a pawn in this scheme, um, he does take it, take his role in it, um, very seriously. And I think his concealing the bugger shows that, He does not want to be a pawn anymore. I mean, his whole life, victim, pawn, bullied, um, naive, used. Um, I don't think he has any other choice, but um, if he's going to be, you know, a moral person in the end is to take this thing, um, this bugger, uh, the Hive Queen, and hope to do something with her someday. And I think he has to leave the rest of humanity out of the decision because he knows what they do. And they know he knows what he's. They've done to him.
1: Mm-hmm. Is Ender right? Do you think to feel guilt over what he did to the buggers when he didn't know what he was doing?
4: Yes, um, I think he might realize that he was um, naive to not realize what was happening. Um, if you read Ender's Shadow, which follows Bean, um, you know his battle school um, buddy. Uh, Bean knows. Full well what's happening. Uh, he walks through the walls. I hope we're not giving anything for mm-hmm. subsequent movies away. Uh, but he, you know, is spying on the commanders, and he knows what they're setting him up for. Um, and Bean knows what's happening at all times. And and once you read Under Shadow, you, you think to yourself, how did Ender not realize what was happening with the way in which things were structured? All the final battle, everyone is present. Ender accepts what people tell him. And his position in things on a regular basis in a way, um, maybe he should feel ashamed of. Mm. Even though he's a child and I feel bad even you know, <laughs> saying that in the first place. I mean, he he has every right to be naive and he is the victim, but at the same time, he at some point, I mean, wouldn't the light turn on that, you know, these people are forcing me to a particular action in the way that they're shaping me? It isn't just I'm gonna be a really good commander. It's oh, all these games, they're leading to something. And, you know, Bean realizes it, and Bean is just as smart as Ender, and I, I think um, you see some frustration on Bean's part, or maybe it's not frustration, but it's, how, how can Ender, who is just, who were just as smart as the other one, how can he not see what they're pushing him towards? Or maybe it's willful ignorance at some point. I don't know.
1: So, uh, we're sort of, we're running a little short on time here. So, um, I guess just, uh, I, w- I want to ask you guys if there's anything else in the book that you just want to uh, highlight a little bit, uh, any essays that stand out in your minds or anything like that?
4: Well, of course mine, everybody should <laughs> read just my essay. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. I really enjoyed the chapter that was put together, um, on questions of character because, and we should, because of all the reasons we've discussed, um, the characters, um, in this book have such interesting relationships to each other and change in such interesting ways over time um, that I felt that discussion was really good in the book.
0: Um, I mean, of course uh, I, I'm, I'm pleased with what I managed to put together <laughs> for <my new> <laughs> as well. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, uh, uh, Ashley, your, your chapter was, was, uh, was great fun. And, and, uh, you know, I'm also at the similar in, in similar places and dynamics with, uh, with monitoring and thinking about, um, whether and to what extent I, am becoming a helicopter, uh, <laughs> with regard to my children. And, and yeah. Um, so that those, those details of course speak to me very personally as well. Um, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I was I was very pleased with the diversity of different topics that we got in and the the kinds of approaches to them. Um, the discussion about Peter and Valentine I think is really interesting, and I'm, I'm so sad that those characters got so attenuated in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> That's so like Alex Hallévez's chapter on on uh, on blogs and demosthenes uh, and the, the the history of demagoguery and, and anonymity it's great stuff and he's he's a new media scholar uh who i i happen to know and he mentioned that he was a fan of Andrew's game and and he saw my call and it was like write something write something about blogging this is what you do uh and i harassed him until he did
1: well, and, and that chapter is really interesting because it's written in the format of a back and forth debate between Locke and Demosthenes, the yeah. online personas of Peter and Valentine.
0: Yeah, yeah, and he sent that to me and he's like, Well, I don't know if this is what you wanted, but it <laughs> is. And I was like, No, this is awesome. <laughs> you don't need to worry. Um And then uh yeah, the the we we talked a bit about Peter and there's there's a just fascinating chapter about Peter and Machiavelli and sort of um in some sense, rehabilitating Peter, or I—I I, I think it's more on that end rather than debasing Mucky Billy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I, I wasn't expecting when I put together the the call that was something I just wasn't wasn't on my radar, and that came in, and I was like, "That's really cool. <laughs> it's a really nice direction to take with this." Um, so yeah, uh, uh, but one that that. Um, I do want to specifically mention as well is the the one on queer theory. Uh and as as the book was developing this is something that um was coming out in the news about Orson Scott Card uh, his 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 really um quite offensive views about homosexuality which are I mean deeply at odds with the content of his writing, so you know, really disorienting to fans to be confronted by this this intolerance. Uh, it makes me so yeah. angry. Yeah, and Ashley, I know you've got you've got a very distinctive take on this that I I want to um be sure that that you you talk about because it's you've got a great take on this. Um, but yeah, that chapter uh, I I kind of commissioned. Part of the way through of, of editing, I contacted someone and said, "Hey, could you could you do something about queer theory?" I mean, someone uh, uh, I, I'm uh, uh, Nick Michaud, uh, uh, one of the one of the authors of that chapter. I contacted Nick and said, "Hey, could you could you do something on, on queer theory and Enders Game?" And he was like, "That would be awesome. <laughs> I want to do that." Um, and it turned out just fabulous. It's a great great chapter and. Points out really um, compelling stuff, showing that there's something weird going on with card and with cards writing and with cards issues about this. I mean, as uh, as Michaud points out uh, in there, he ends up sleeping in the same room as his older teacher uh, as part of his training uh on the the uh, on arrows like that's where they are they're on arrows and <laughs> <laughs> they're staying in the same room and it's it's um there's some really weird I mean the shower fight scene of course is really uh there there's a great deal of ambivalence going on about you know young boys wrestling together uh and after uh, uh, as um as nick michaud points out uh, again I, I, I this is something i just hadn't hadn't seen but there's this line that he found about um how he would follow bonzo's hips anywhere and <laughs> that, I, that's <laughs> a really distinctive way to describe leadership um, <laughs> so that was, that was really cool. Um, the way that that turned out and it, it great, but, but yeah, Ashley, you've, you've got a particular take on card and his intolerance.
4: Oh, I, you know, I am made so angry in knowing about cards hate. I wish I had never known any of that because to me, Ender's game and speaker for the dead and the other books in the Underverse. Um, which is the Ender universe, which all you geeks probably already know that. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Um, You know, after reading these, I was really high on the idea that if you could love another that you don't know, that if you could know them, then you're forced to love them. So Ender gets to know the Hive Queen and can't help but love her and help her in her ends. I mean, Card has it all wrapped together. Love, hate, war, peace, reconciliation. The idea... That if you know someone well enough and you understand their motives, which comes out in Speaker for the Dead, um, the idea of the Speaker for the Dead is if you can tell a person's life story as it happened with all the horrible parts of it in as well, that you can understand them and you are forced to love that person. I mean, this is part of what makes up all of Orson Scott Card's novels in the Enderverse. The idea that knowledge is love. I mean, forget this children at war stuff. The under books are about love and understanding and acceptance, and you can encounter something completely foreign to yourself—a true other—and once you understand it, the love is there. I mean, and that 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 Orson Scott Card can be so hateful at all it just makes no sense. If he reads his own books, I think he'll understand better what I mean here. Um, and love is redemptive. I mean, it's redeeming the Hive Queen.
1: Well, yeah, and, and I mean, Orson Scott Card is a very controversial figure. And oftentimes, anytime his name comes up, a lot of passionate, uh, you know, commentary ensues. Have you have you seen any of that uh, in regard to this book? Have you gotten any sort of uh, – what sort of reactions to it have you gotten?
4: Oh, well, I've had one of my friends tell me they, they would never read Orson Scott Card's works um, or – you know, engage in any of this and that I'm silly to put uh, my, my name on something in this book because Orson Scott card is such a hateful bigot. Um, I think there has been a huge backlash. I mean, at least among people who would otherwise read and enjoy these books.
0: Yeah. I think uh, I've really, um, I've heard m- more, more moderate kind of claims mm. probably because um, yeah, but as As editor, I think maybe that would just appear more impolite for some reason. <laughs> <Talk> <laughs> to me about it in that way uh but but yeah, I mean I've heard from from several people saying like, I was totally excited about this movie, and um now that I know more about cards suddenly, like i just can't I can't go, I can't support him mm. um sort of ever again. Uh, and of course, this book gets caught up in this. Um, because people just want to say, like, I, I, I love what I got from that book, but I have to walk away now. Uh, I have to disengage. So I, I think the, the, the success of the book must get caught up in, in some of the boycott, but, um, having that discussion in there about, you know, well, the, there's, let's let's look seriously at what's going actually what's going on actually in um in Anders' game about homosexuality and seeing that what's going on there is actually quite ambivalent uh, i I think that um that approach and just sort of you know meeting meeting it head on like what's let's seriously look at what's going on in here about about this um I think that that helped to to blunt any possible criticism of us as you know perpetuating um an anti-gay agenda. Uh even though, yeah, it, it's an unavoidable and, and troubling association. Uh, and and incidentally, when I started the project, I had no idea about any of this either. No. Uh as I think you know, most of most of the fans didn't. Um, until suddenly it was part of a blockbuster, potential (laughs) blockbuster motion picture. And yeah, and then this was everywhere. But when I started the book, no idea.
1: I mean, just uh, quickly, what did you guys think of the movie?
4: I I loved the movie. I thought um, they did... I mean, I am always skeptical when I'm going into a book. I really like the the new movie of it. Um and I thought they did a much better job than I expected. They stayed truer to the book. The battle room was awesome. Um, and usually I'm not um going into movies for special effects, but um it was very cool and it, it does help you think out Um, Some scenes in the book that for me were kind of hazy because of the flying around in the room. Um, I thought that was very cool. I was really disappointed in the ending, of course, uh, because it seems like if there is a sequel, it's going to look nothing like the sequel to Ender's Game, uh, which would really uh, be disappointing.
0: Yeah, that that was a a sort of weird thing going in that um, you can see how Ender's Game is positioned to be a huge blockbuster and then the sequels to Enders Game just aren't. <laughs> like <laughs> Speaker for the Dead would be a really great movie, but it would be very, very different. <laughs> it wouldn't <laughs> be
4: exciting. It wouldn't to the, the
0: same scene. audience.
4: Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah definitely. Uh, and, and, and I mean, it's kind of an amazing thing that 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 worked for so many fans of the the novel to go on to the next and be like, "Hey, this is." <laughs> Totally different kind of story <laughs> um, anyway yeah the 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 film itself, you know um I think they they made good choices about how to fail, uh given that failure was inevitable, you know uh in the way that that adaptations of books this this always happens you need to leave out huge amounts of things. Um, uh, I was very sad to see Peter and Valentine's characters just become um props. Mm. Um, but but I don't know, you know, what else could have been cut. <laughs> so that was disappointing, but okay, sure. Um the I, I totally agree about the Battle Room. They did a great job uh with making the special effects. Um make that real without having them take over without having the special effects become the, the, the film. Um, one thing that I don't have a good handle on is how the film worked for people who hadn't read the book is I I read one review from somebody who mentioned that she hadn't read the book and it was, um, it was totally disorienting to me. Uh, this, this film critic who talked about like, well, it's too bad that they didn't really develop the romantic interest and
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. Oh. um and that that was one part where um you know Petro was was taken in to to show uh how to um how to be a good sniper. Um <laughs> how to how to use these these uh, freeze weapons effectively at long range and so on. And the way it was shot out uh, in the theater was like, "Oh god." <laughs> Like they just they couldn't resist taking the one possible opening for vague sexy times and like putting that in. I was <laughs> so
4: worried they were gonna kiss. I yeah. my hands were digging into the the seat. I was like, oh no, don't let them kiss. Don't let them kiss.
0: Yeah, yeah, and this this it would critic, ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, this critic was like, well, you know. Couldn't they have just, you know, had a kiss in there somewhere? (laughs) (laughs) It was so totally the opposite reaction that, that, yeah, that I guess we had both had. Um, But, you know, part of that is the way that they made the characters older, Mm. where the characters, as they appear in the film, you know, I'm approaching them through the book. So I'm still seeing them as like, well, you know, keeping in the back of my mind, he's supposed to be seven right here, even though obviously he isn't. and so, if they had filmed those characters embodied in this older way kissing, that would have been like deeply creepy for me in a way that it wasn't for someone who'd never read the book um, so yeah I, I I don't have much perspective on the film as a standalone thing, um, and that's that's kind of interesting on its own. <laughs>
1: All right, great. So uh, I, I promised to let Ashley go at eleven, so we should start wrapping this up now. Um, I guess just do you have any? Do you guys have any other uh, projects you're working on? Any upcoming books or papers or anything you want to mention?
4: Um, I'm working on a book um, about uh, non-human animal tool use and how we can make sense of it in our theories about technology. <sighs> <laughs> if that makes sense. So chimps who use tools, crows that use tools, um, how do we make sense of them? Given what we've said about technology, it seems like some of these things count. Um, so yeah, it's a fun book.
0: Uh, are are you looking at all at... Uh- Sort of more more instinctual, less uh, creative problem-solving directed use, oh, like, y- y- like trapdoor yes. spiders and bird's nests and stuff like that?
4: Uh, yes. Um, so there's a, a whole bunch of literature on birds, but there's also things that are interesting about uh, beaver dam building um, right. and how if you play the sound a tape recorder of rushing water in a place where there has been no rushing water, but there are beavers present, they'll fell a whole bunch of trees um, and put a whole bunch of stuff to muffle that sound. Um, it seems like they're reacting to, you know, the, the sound of rushing water. Where it's the loudest, of course, is where the stream is most narrow, and that's where they build their dams. Um, so there's some interesting uh, literature about beavers as well that I really um, enjoy. So I'm trying to look at the whole spectrum um, and not just, not just the cases that we know are easy to deal with.
1: And then Dylan, do you have what are you what are you working on?
0: Yeah, uh, I'm I'm working in too many directions i i have a sort of sustained research program in developing uh philosophical theories about uh about facebook and uh social networking and our our engagement with each other uh, our pursuit of relationships and uh um ethical action uh on facebook uh the presence of politics on facebook especially as related to Occupy and other new social movements. So that's that's the sort of long-term thing that I've been working on. And in the meantime, I keep getting distracted by just fascinating stuff that I see. Like I'm working on something about uh, bacon right now. I'm trying to make sense of why bacon is such a prominent part of internet culture. Francis and,
4: or Roger? Uh,
0: yeah, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would be the reasonable thing for a philosopher to be working on. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I actually just did an interview last Thursday, uh, with a reporter working on on this topic, trying to tell the story of, um, the rise of bacon in our culture today. <laughs> uh, it, it's a, it's a weird thing. I, I, I also have a similar project uh, on internet cats. So yeah, I'm trying to organize a, a, a workshop, um, in October. That I would uh, I'm co-organizing would be co-facilitating to try to put together um, a research program among a group of scholars who are interested in this because right now looking doing some some background lit review stuff um, there's so little done on the theory of cats online and (laughs) sort of cuteness online in general that it looks like. I may, in fact, be the leading scholar on this <laughs> right now with my mere two publications on the topic. Uh, this is just, it's not happening. And, uh, and it needs to. This is important. Mm. This is significant and strange and calls for explanation. Uh,
1: and I, I mentioned that you, in the bio, that you have a, a book called Philip K. Dick in Philosophy as well. Right. Do you have other stuff that's so directly relevant to science fiction fans?
0: Hmm. Um not at this time. Um I I hope at some point to be doing some work with Lovecraft. That would be cool. Yeah, of course not science fiction, but but obviously same kind of fan base. Mm -hmm. Um but uh but yeah, not at not at this moment otherwise and no no direct plans right now for Lovecraft. I've I've sort of a long term uh, scheme about where to place that and how to organize
1: that. All right, cool. Well, well, I, I would, I would read it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, if that, if that helps. Sure.
0: Everything helps.
4: Yeah. <laughs> uh, just keep me posted on the cats.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So uh, Ashley, thanks for joining us.
4: Thank you so much, David.
1: And Dylan, thanks for joining us. Great. Thanks very much. And, of course, big thanks again to Carl Schrader for being our guest today. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including GeekGuy77. And also a very special thank you to all of our crowdfunders, including our newest supporter, Jan Yuntunin, crowdfunder number 70. To learn more, visit our website at geeksguideshow.com and click on crowdfunding. I also just got an email from listener Sean Cobrey that I thought maybe I should answer on the air, because other people may be wondering about this too. So Sean writes, quote, If I'm a representative sample of the public, then everybody loves your show, and has adequate disposable income to appropriately subsidize it. About a dozen episodes ago, you talked about a potential crowdfunding project. I have been waiting to contribute so I could help maximize your momentum when that happens. Since it has been a little while, without further mention, I wanted to check in and see if third-party crowdfunding is still going to happen. Your podcast is my favorite serial media, and I hope you can keep it going for a long time. So big thanks to Sean for that note. We definitely appreciate the sentiment. Here's part of what I wrote in response. I said, quote, I was planning to launch the Kickstarter sometime around now, but I just haven't gotten around to it. Mostly I've just been too busy working on the podcast itself to put any more work into the Kickstarter. I also thought it might be a good idea to see how much I like hosting the show by myself before I commit to an entire year of it, and also give listeners a fair chance to see if they still like the show with me as the main host before they contribute money to it. I've also been trying to see if I could come up with some interesting angle for the Kickstarter that might make it more exciting and noteworthy than just give us money to keep the show going. But I haven't really come up with anything, so maybe I should just bite the bullet and go for it. Anyway, you'll definitely hear about it if we launch the Kickstarter, and the show is definitely not going to just suddenly disappear one day without giving you a chance to contribute funds to keep it going. So no worries there. So yeah, that's where things stand with the Kickstarter. So just everyone stay tuned for more on that. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com.
0: For more information about the show